0: I'll never forget sitting in my living room, looking at this map and going, I could hike that whole trail. Like I could just connect the dots. It wasn't all established trail tread. There was some road walking, but I could just go out for who knows how long it was going to take me. And I could walk the whole length of this trail. And I didn't know people did that. I didn't know that was a term. I didn't know that was through hiking. I just thought I was going to be setting off and doing this really unique thing. So that was the start of it all.
1: Episode 327, Lint Bunting is a triple-triple-crown thru-hiker with 30,000 miles to his name. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is sponsored by Action Heat. Action Heat makes the world's best heated clothing. Powered by rechargeable batteries, it's the perfect way to stay warm. Save 15% off your order when you go to action-heat.com adventure. That's action-heat.com adventure. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville.
2: Hi friends, thanks again so much for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. You know, it's it's just amazing every time I do a show to think about all of you that are out there hopefully benefiting from what our wonderful guests bring to us, you know, week after week, episode after episode of of people sharing what they've learned in their lives about adventure and about perspective and all those things. It's just an honor for me to be able to be a part of that dynamic. And I've got a great one for you today. Today I have Clint Bunting, better known by, as uh, Lent Bunting, by, you know, the hiking community. Lint is one of the... Uh, best-known through hikers of our time is a good way to say it. He was the third person to complete the Triple Crown, which means that he hiked the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail end-to-end, and he was the third person to do that. But in addition to that, he's continued this long-distance hiking lifestyle and he's continued on to do the Ice Age Trail, the Colorado Trail, the Arizona Trail, the Florida Trail, and many others. He's up to about 30,000 miles of hiking. But he also has a lot to tell us about what he calls van life, which is learning how to live out of your, um, your equipped vehicle for it. And I'm excited to talk about that. Travis uh, has a van set up that way as well, so that's going to be a fun conversation and uh, I think we're just going to have a lot of fun with this. So, Lent, welcome to the program. What's happening, Kurt? Man, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I know that it is sometimes difficult to connect all the dots to make this happen, but thank you for going out of your way so that we can hear from you on the Adventure Sports Podcast.
0: Hey, I'm a bit of a Luddite, and technology definitely isn't my forte, but uh, with the help of some friends and their Wi-Fi and their microphone and headphones, I am able to speak to you today instead of uh, being in my van and just talking to you over the phone. And uh, real real quick, I just wanted to correct you on the intro. I'm actually the third person to do the triple, triple crown. So, oh, uh,
2: my yeah, goodness.
0: Yeah, I think there's like 200 to 300 people who have actually hiked the triple crown, but uh, there's... Three of us now that have done Appalachian Trail three times, Pacific Crest Trail three times, and the Continental Divide Trail three times, which lets you know I probably need a new hobby.
2: (laughs) Well, it's funny because I was thinking, well, 30,000 miles, I list all these trails, and I said 30,000 miles. So he's got some other walking in there somewhere. (laughs) That's it. The triple, triple. So that's nine through hikes of the long trails. Correct.
0: Yeah. And then there's a, a handful of others like you mentioned.
2: Speaking of the Long Trail, have you done that one?
0: I have not done the Long Trail. That's one of the, the trails that's definitely on my list, along with the Pacific Northwest Trail, Hayduke Trail. Uh, there's some other other routes I'd like to explore. I just got so focused on doing the the big three, as we call them in our community, that uh, yeah, there's, I got plenty of
2: time left. I'm going to keep going for it, though. Cool, very cool. So, why do you hike? I mean, you're you are the through hiker. And, and I just got to ask straight out of the chute, what motivates you to, to do that?
0: Well, um, and I don't really consider myself like the through hiker I'm a through hiker who has embraced this lifestyle and kind of made it part of my identity. But uh, there's people in my community who I look up to, who I think are way more experienced and have accomplished greater things than I have. I've just been fortunate enough to have a lot of time to walk Uh, made this a priority in my life and I've built the rest of my life around going out and doing these hikes but it's really not that anything special it's literally the thing you learn to do when you're two years old like (laughs) I'm really I'm really good at walking
2: (laughs) well you know what Lynn I have to say an awful lot of people would love to have figured out the lifestyle that allowed them to have the experiences that you've had And so I know that you're saying, I I can walk. That's what I do. But I have to say to you, you've also figured out an adventure-focused lifestyle, and that's not easy. So maybe the question that I should have asked is, how did you get into this adventure-focused lifestyle? Well,
0: uh, we'd have to go back to probably 2003. I didn't really know what I was doing with my life. I was uh, drinking a lot, experimenting with other drugs, and just kind of, being a punk rock scumbag kid. And when I quit using drugs, I was exploring some other options that were out there. And I heard about this ice age trail and I wrote to the ice age trail foundation to request a map set for the 50 miles through the kettle Moraine. And so in addition to the 50 mile map, they also sent me a large fold out overview map. So it showed all of Wisconsin with the whole route on there. And I'll never forget sitting in my living room, looking at this map and going, I could hike that whole trail. Like I could just connect the dots. It wasn't all established trail tread. There was some road walking, but I could just go out for who knows how long it was going to take me. And I could walk the whole length of this trail. And I didn't know people did that. I didn't know that was a term. I didn't know that was through hiking. I just thought I was going to be setting off and doing this really unique thing. So that was the start of it all. And I just went to a a gear store and between that combination, and a little bit of goodwill gear, put together my kit set out with some paper maps and big leather boots and a huge backpack, all the stuff people traditionally bring before they've kind of learned how to efficiently through hike.
2: Right, And
0: I did it. I did it. And it took me 52 days and I was in pain almost the entire way. I had blisters from day one till day 52 every single day plantar fasciitis, all the, all the ailments that people usually get. Mm. Like I had all those things and there wasn't a community out there. No,
2: the ice age trails kind of lonely.
0: Yeah. I was, if memory serves and I could totally be wrong with this. I think I was like the 11th person to thru-hike it at the time. Uh, I, I do know that that year in 2003, there was only one other thru-hiker out there. Uh, I never actually met him on trail. He was two weeks behind me. So that whole time I never saw any other hikers. I only saw one other backpacker that whole trip. The only exposure I had to people was when I'd go into town to resupply. Mm. So I didn't have other people to kind of look at and learn from and see that maybe I should change up the gear I was using.
2: I was just winging it. But you did it. So that was your first big hike then, the Ice Age Trail. Yeah, it was. That was my my first love. Wow. So what was your second? And then we need to contrast the two, because I know that your second was going to be more where the community is. Sure. So my second
0: long distance hike was the following year, 2004. I set out for the Appalachian Trail. So on the Ice Age Trail, my base weight, and when I say base weight, I mean everything excluding consumables like water and food. So my base weight would be my shelter, my, my cold weather gear, my rain gear, my stove, all that jazz on the ice age trail. My base weight was about 35 pounds. So setting out on the Appalachian trail the following year, I had done a little research. I had read Ray Jardine's book beyond backpacking, which if you haven't read that, it's kind of the Bible Bible for ultralight hiking. Uh, and so on the Appalachian trail that year, I started out with the 22 pound base weight. So for that time on that trail, I got a lot of looks from people because my pack was so much smaller than everyone else's. Mm. But even, you know, looking back at it now, I'm like 22 pounds. Holy cats. That was still enormously huge. But that was my second through hike. That was uh, the 2,184 mile, roughly, Georgia to Maine, Appalachian Trail through hike.
2: Awesome. And in that through hike then, you had done more study and more preparation. And now you were the light packer at that point. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I was starting to move into that direction. I was hiking in sneakers instead of boots. I had a simple sill nylon tarp style shelter in lieu of a big, enormous four season shelter. And I was cooking on a homemade beer can stove that burned denatured alcohol instead of carrying the traditional MSR whisper light stove. So I was, I had picked up a few little tips and tricks from Jardine's book, but I, definitely didn't fully embrace the ultralight philosophy because I wasn't experienced enough with it. Sure, I hadn't actually seen it in use. I hadn't, you know, it's one thing to read about something in a book. And it's another thing to meet someone who's using these practices and realizing, hey, if they're doing it, I could do that too.
2: Well, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, what is ultralight? So... The general term ultralight
0: backpacking, um, and people would probably argue the specifics of the weight, but I generally use that to describe, you know, under 10 pounds for a total base weight would be like an ultralight backpacker.
2: Okay, I've got to ask about that. So I have seen people that go on an overnighter or a day hike in under 10 pounds. But I don't know many people that do a through hike with under 10 pounds. So you're saying that you're able to hike two, 3,000 miles with a pack that light.
0: For sure. Because all the gear that you need for one overnight is pretty much the same gear you're going to need for 150 overnights. You still have to carry a shelter. You still have to carry rain gear, warm clothes, a way to cook your food. You need to carry all that thing. So the only difference really is how much food you're carrying, how much water you're carrying. That's the only variable that really changes whether it's a one night or four months on trail.
2: Right. And I have to tell you, I'm a light backpacker, but I've not managed to be the ultralight backpacker yet. I don't know what my base weight is, but I'm still probably around your 22 to 25 pound mark. Well, I am definitely not your judge. (laughs) (laughs) You know,
0: I I come from, uh, you you know, I started out at that 35 pound base weight. Went to the 22 pound base weight. Uh, as I continued through hiking and learned more from my peers, I picked up more from meeting people like Scott Williamson, um, who was a somewhat of a famous ultralight backpacker on the Pacific Crest Trail. You know, through meeting those people and learning what they did, stopping to to chat with them, take their advice, experiment with what works for me, and always a student, right? You know, it's like anything else in life. If you think you know it all, you definitely don't. Mm. And at this point in my my, my life, when I go out on a thru-hike, depending on the trail, I'm gonna, my base weight's going to be around six pounds.
2: Six pounds. Describe that yeah. to us. I think that there are a lot of people that their jaw just hit the floor. They're thinking, okay, I went backpacking and it was 50. I had 50 pounds. <laughs> so sure. how do you do six?
0: So I'm looking at every piece of gear that I carry. Uh, with a very critical eye. And if you see the progression over the years of how light my backpack's gotten, it's runs a similar axis with how much experience I have. So I know what my comfort level is, and I know what I need to be safe, comfortable, and enjoy my time outside. Also, on a thru-hike, I'm not really doing what a traditional backpacker would. Most people will hike for five to 10 miles, and they'll stop. Maybe they'll go fishing. Maybe they'll read a book. Maybe they'll make s'mores or hang around the campfire. I'm definitely not doing that on a through hike. So I'm trying to get from, for example, Mexico to Canada on the Pacific Crest Trail. That's 2,650 miles. There's a weather window between when you can start and when you can finish that trail. And it's not a huge window. So I'm trying to go start and finish before winter comes and closes off the Northern Cascades on the PCT. So I'm, it's not a leisurely hangout through the woods, bringing your sketchbook and dilly dallying. It's a very goal oriented, focused style of hiking where I'm trying to cover maximum miles every day to get and beat the snow before it comes down to Canada.
1: Mm
2: well, and it is so, true, to do the through-hikes in the window that you have, you have to hoof it. And, uh, you know, another thing here, 30,000 miles of hiking, you do realize that that's more than all the way around the planet. I do. <laughs> <laughs> you could Someone... have hiked all the way around the Earth. That's wild, man. Yeah,
0: yeah. The uh, the uh, the water crossings would have been probably the most challenging part, though. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know when there's a bridge up. You have to put on your Jesus sandals. Right. And get some water wings and just kind of through float.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's awesome. So describe this six pound kit for us. What's in there that you think is essential for you? And I'm going to say this in advance. It may be that other people need more than this because of their skill level. Right. But what's essential for you?
0: Yeah. 100 percent. Like I I love talking about this stuff because it's what works for me. And. I also also like to throw out that caveat, like this may not be for everybody. Like it comes with experience. I know what my body is comfortable with. I know what I need personally to be happy. There's definitely no right way to do any of this. Like if you look at ten different experienced ultralight through hikers backpacks, they're all gonna look slightly different. You're gonna see some commonalities between the two, but no one has the answer. And even me, I've done you know, nearly 30,000 miles at this point. And I'm still experimenting with gear, trying new stuff out. As I change, I'm getting older. My comfort levels are slightly changing. Um, It's it's, it's always in flux. But that being said, so my lightweight base weight for, uh, I keep bringing up the Pacific Crest Trail since I'm in Oregon right now. Um, So I'm going to bring a Cuban fiber tarp or maybe a tarp with some netting in it. I'm going to bring a closed cell foam sleeping pad that's cut down to the length of my torso. So it's just covering from where my shoulders down to my hips, nothing else. Instead of a sleeping bag, I'm bringing a sleeping quilt, which is essentially a sleeping bag without a bottom. Because if you think about the way insulation works in a sleeping bag, insulation only works if it's lofted. So as soon as you crawl onto that bag, your body weight compresses the down or synthetic insulation and renders it completely useless. So you're carrying all that insulation all day, crawling in your sleeping bag, compressing it, and it's not keeping you warm. Wasted weight. It's a wasted weight. And if you don't need that weight, it doesn't make any sense to carry it. So I go through all my gear list and I'm, you know, I'm not carrying a change of clothes. I'm carrying the quilt instead of a sleeping bag, a tarp instead of a heavy tent. Um, I've actually stopped even cooking. I... Used to carry a small titanium pot and a little alcohol stove, and since then I've just realized, hey, if I just carry a plastic peanut butter jar, all the foods I traditionally eat as a backpacker, I can rehydrate those just with water and time.
2: Mm, so
0: okay. I'm I'm cold soaking. I'm letting time and uh, the sun, you know, do the cooking for me. It's essentially just kind of rehydrating it, making it palatable. So, yeah, I don't even carry the pot, the stove or the fuel. I'm just carrying this plastic peanut butter jar, putting my my food inside, letting it soak and then eating it straight out of the jar.
2: Wow. So let me go over the list so far. Cuban fiber tarp, a torso length closed cell pad, a sleeping quilt instead of a sleeping bag, no extra clothes, no mess kit, no stove, no fuel. So I can see how you've gotten things incredibly light. What else is in there?
0: So I'll uh, carry a puffy jacket. Um, I've been experimenting with a synthetic version of the puffy from Enlightened Equipment right now that uh, I'm liking a lot more than my down jacket since if it gets wet, it still retains heat. Uh, I'll also carry a rain jacket, so some kind of a shell that will protect me from precipitation. And in conjunction with that, I like to bring an umbrella (laughs)
2: so there's something you don't see on the trail very often yeah you you do more
0: so in my community for the through hikers Uh, a lot of those people do carry umbrellas because if you think about it not only is that going to keep precipitation off your face and keep your torso dry when you're traversing some of these more arid desert sections uh, you're bringing your shade with you so instead of you know, just relying on a wide-brimmed hat and having the sun rays beat down upon you, you deploy your fancy Mary Poppins umbrella, and there you go, you have shade. And one of the things with raining, you you really don't see a lot of people who just have a rain jacket stopping to take breaks versus someone with an umbrella. It's actually quite pleasant to be out in the rain. It's not beating down on your cheeks and your nose, and yeah, it's kind of nice.
2: Okay, so the umbrella... I've seen some people that have an umbrella that mounts on their hat somehow. Are you holding the umbrella <laughs> in your hand? Or how does this work?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I prefer to hold it in my hand. That
2: way, as the
0: twi- trail twists and turns, I could change the angle of the umbrella to protect me from the sun's rays or the, the raindrops, whichever's coming down at the moment. So I can also douse the umbrella and close it if a s- strong gust of wind pops up. Uh, I can also move it around brush as I'm going down the trail. Uh, I prefer to just hold it in my hand. And the, the whole umbrella weighs like eight ounces. So every five to 10 minutes, I'll just switch hands, which also has the benefit of keeping my hands above my heart. So the blood isn't just pooling in my hands if they're like swinging down by my sides.
2: Oh, yeah. That keeps the swelling in your fingers down, I'm sure, and gives a little extra blood for the rest of the body. Sure does, and it
0: uh, makes for some really hilarious photo opportunities when people see you on trail. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, dude! Did you know it's not raining? <laughs> right? Yeah, people. I've heard that
0: from people as they're tucked under the limited shade of a cactus in the 105 degree heat. <laughs> <And> I,
2: <laughs> well, did you tell them it's not an umbrella; it's a parasol? I haven't got quite
0: to that point, but uh, maybe on the next hike, I'll increase my vocabulary. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's awesome. So is that the full kit? Is that it?
0: Uh, I will, depending on the
2: trail, um, I will also bring
0: maybe some long underwear. So like leggings. Uh, I'll also bring a ground cloth. Um, So I'll put the ground cloth underneath my sleeping pad and then the quilt in my body rest on top of that. And that's pretty much just to keep any moisture from coming up into the ground and trying to go through my gear list in my head right now. You know, of course I bring all the, the compass the maps you know I bring a very small minimal first aid kit I bring a small one inch blade knife so I could open up packages that I've mailed to myself or remove a splinter Um, yeah I don't I don't bring water treatment that's something that shocks people a lot I depending on the trail again um, I will bring a small visine dropper full of bleach and put two drops per liter if the water is exceptionally bad i'm thinking cow tank on the continental Divide trail where cattle are actively defecating in the water source yes (laughs) yes i will treat that water source but you have a spring or a stream or a small creek where i can look at the topo map and see that there's no farming residential areas above me i've i feel comfortable drinking freely from those water sources And I've been assured by people much smarter than I that you cannot build up a resistance to things like Cryptosporidium and Giardia. But I've been doing this a long time, and I have not yet once gotten any kind of sickness from it. So I don't necessarily recommend people do that, but that's what I do.
2: Well, you know, it's funny that you bring that up. I treat my water. That said, I didn't treat my water until I was 18 years old or older. And, uh, I drank from creeks and streams and, and springs all over the place. I can't say I never got sick because I did once and I got really sick. And I, I looked back on it years later and said, maybe that was Giardia. It had all the right symptoms and the right duration. And it made me think, I wonder if I built up a resistance because I let it go. It's full course. Right. You know what I mean? Um, but I don't know.
0: It's hard to say. It it really is. I think. There like everything else in life, there's really no answer. There's no like correct way to to go about your life. And my immune system may be stronger than another person's. So that's why I don't like to tell people like, hey, you don't need to treat your water. That's what I do, but I don't really suggest that. Like I've been doing this for a while. I may be a carrier of giardia. Maybe I'm just not showing any signs or symptoms of these sicknesses, but I I hold the 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 virus inside me. I don't know. But what I do know is that. Most people seem to be getting sick on trails like the Appalachian Trail, where they're coming in way more contact with other hikers. Right. What I suspect, I suspect that most of these cases of intestinal distress come from things like shaking hands, sharing food, touching trail registers, all while people have not washed their hands after having a bowel movement. Right. In fact, if you you know if you if you look at normal society, like who in our Our society is actually getting Giardia that isn't hikers. It's people who work with kids. So kids, as a father of four, you probably know this, they like to scratch their butts and then put their hands right on the pancakes. (laughs) Right. You know, you're, you're looking at people who are working with kids and they have a higher statistic probability of getting things like Giardia. And it's from just fecal contamination. So on trail, I never shake anyone's hand i will do a fist bump and i definitely never share food with anybody so yeah that's just my two cents on that i'm again not telling people not to treat their water but i think the uh the usual suspects are not the the proverbial beaver fever i don't really think it's uh animals that are getting people sick i think it's other people
2: yeah leave the beaver out of this yeah they never <laughs> did anything to you go. Hey, we have a new sponsor on the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm excited about this one. I've been wondering for a long time when active technology was going to be incorporated with clothing to do cool things. And here's an example. This is Action Heat. Action Heat is a line of clothing that actually weaves heating elements into the clothes. It works similarly to how a car seat is heated. Except that it runs off a little rechargeable battery pack. And this battery pack can last up to 12 hours on a charge. It can also recharge your cell phone or other devices, so it's multi-purpose. And they have all kinds of options here. Hats, they have jackets, they have shirts, they have socks, they have gloves. They even have undergarments like long johns. Man, they will keep you cozy from head to toe. I can see using this motorcycle riding riding up the lift at the ski area, watching a ball game. Anytime I need that little extra boost of heat, this stuff really fits the bill. So Action Heat, you can get it at action-heat.com forward slash adventure. Please do use the forward slash adventure for two reasons. For one, that's how they know that you heard about them from us. For two, it saves you 15%. So how cool is that? Your holiday shopping is done. All you have to do is go to action-heat.com forward slash adventure. Hey friends, it's really been fun the last couple of weeks watching the early season snow start to blanket the high peaks. Winter is on the way. Bentgate Mountaineering is ready to help get you prepared for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. You know, when I was in Kenya, we did treat our water there, followed the World Health Organization guidelines, you know, and the the local people would come to us and they finally got to know us well enough that they they said, why are you doing that? What is the point? And they they just kind of laughed at us, thinking we were being paranoid. And I finally told them, I said, listen, you guys have built up a tolerance to this. That's remarkable. And so you're stronger than we are. We're weak. If we drink the water without treating it, we don't have that tolerance yet. So and I didn't go on to say the next part, which is our infant mortality rate is a lot different than yours, too. Mm. And I want to bring that up because there are waterborne diseases like cholera and other things that kill a lot of children. And the ones that survive are the ones that have the immunity. And so I guess the point of that is you have found a, a, a risk factor that you're comfortable with, and it's working for you. And I kind of like the idea of it. I mean, you can treat your liter of water with a couple of drops of bleach. That goes a long way.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a calculated risk on my part. Uh, I definitely didn't start out not treating my water. I treated everything religiously, and it was only over experimenting. Uh, I, re- I distinctly remember on one of my Appalachian Trail threads, it would be the second one in 2010, I decided towards the very end of that trail, I'm gonna try to get Giardia because I knew I was gonna <laughs> I knew I was gonna finish the trail in less than two weeks and Giardia usually takes more than two weeks to actually show signs or symptoms so I figured if I get sick I'll be home no big deal so that last stretch in Maine I drank from every single water source I passed no matter how stagnant skunky, dark cloudy I didn't care I took at least one sip from everything and straight up that was to try to give myself Giardia. And I suffered no consequences.
2: Wow, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so
0: I don't know. that being said, if I went over to Africa or something where you know there, there were there were stronger diseases potentially in the water, I would treat my water over there. I'm doing this here in alpine areas of North America or on the East Coast in the Appalachian Trail, where you have springs that are coming out, they're filtered by the biggest filter of all, Mother Earth. Right.
2: Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. I want to say for the listeners, a few episodes back, we talked a little bit about the Life Straw, and that's another Mm -hmm. option because all it is is a straw. You just drink Mm -hmm. through it from the creek, but that thing only weighs, I don't know, it might be two ounces, maybe it's less than that, but it does filter out the Giardia. So if you want the the in-between, there you have it. I mean, that's pretty darn light.
0: I mean, you're also talking to a guy who routinely cuts the handle off of his toothbrush in an effort to shave grams. Right. <laughs> so two ounces may not seem very much, but when you start applying that to all your gear, the old saying is uh, ounces add up to pounds and pounds add up to pain.
2: Yeah. So yeah.
0: for 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 my very niche specific ultra light long distance through hiking style, I go a little bit to the uh to the absurd with, with, with lightweight.
2: Well you know what? Clint, Lint. <laughs> I can't decide which one to call you. So no, I answer to both. You know what? Lint is very light. That kind of matches here. So, uh, Lint, we've never done a deep dive into ultralight backpacking as, as well as we just did for you or with you. Um, thank you for that. That's awesome. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I,
0: I have a full gear list up on my website if people want to look and see exactly what I'm carrying. I, I'm sure there's a few things I neglected to mention but, uh,
2: yeah. Well, the really, the differences between what you're packing and what I pack, let me look at this. The half-size pad, yes. I do have a full sleeping bag, but I've been questioning that. Mm. Minimal clothes change. Mm, I have none. Yeah, you have none. I do use a tarp instead of a tent. We match there. Oh, I nice. don't carry a ground cloth. Okay. I just, I just rely on my pad for that. And... uh On some trips, I do still carry a stove, which would be the 180 stove that we manufacture. It burns twigs, so I don't have to carry any fuel. Nice. And so that's very light. Um, I think really the only thing here that I could do would be to get rid of my change of clothes and uh, maybe start cold soaking my food. I wanted to ask you about that before we move on to another topic here. What types of food do you cold soak, and how does that work for you?
0: Well, most of the foods that you're going to want to bring with you into the backcountry can be soaked, with the exception of pasta. So Mm. I did have to give up boxed macaroni and cheese, which was one of my favorite things to eat, but uh, everything else. So couscous, tabbouleh, instant soup packets, instant refried beans, instant potatoes, uh, all the Mountain House and their style freeze-dried meals all can cold soak. I will also pick up, there's a Bear Creek brand chili. Most grocery stores sell it it's in a blue plast- uh, plastic pouch. Or It's green, green pouch. Uh, you can soak most of those things within two hours. Sometimes it takes three. But yeah, with the exception of the, of the pasta, that's the only thing I've really had to give up. Even instant coffee, I don't partake when I'm on trail, but I know plenty of ultralight stoveless hikers who will just bring the instant via packets and mix it up with cold water and down the hatch.
2: Oh, there you go. Well, that's cool. You know, I think that the biggest obstacle to enjoying backpacking is the weight of the pack. I really do. Um, Doing long distances has its own challenges, but getting the pack weight down, I think, opens it up for so many people. But, you know, here's what happens. They look at sleeping under a tarp and they start thinking about fighting bugs and mosquitoes all night and that they like being kind of inside of that cocoon of a tent so they feel safer or whatever it might be. It's just their own comfort level. And so they start to hedge and say, well, I got to have the tent, you know, and then that just keeps on adding weight. So... I don't know. Everyone's got to find your balance, huh?
0: Definitely. And there are still tarp-style tents that have very minimal footprint using lightweight materials that do offer full bug netting. And depending on the trail, the time of year, I will bring one of those because if, say, Oregon on the PCT, when the mosquitoes are out in July, I've done it under a tarp. It's not pleasant. Uh, Switching over to something like um, a tarp tent or a z-packs hexamid or something along those lines will offer a little bit more bug protection because that's kind of a deal breaker for a lot of people um, oh yeah yeah no doubt uh, yeah but being out there with a lightweight pack it not only i feel enhances your experience your connection to being outside you're not burdened with this huge heavy pack that's making you stare at the ground as you plod along the trail and you can't wait to stop and take this behemoth load off your back with an ultralight pack. You're just kind of strolling down the trail. Uh, most people who see me on the, the long trails, they don't even realize I'm through hiking. Yeah, They see me, they see me bounding down towards them. I usually hike in a button up synthetic shirt with running shorts, sneakers. And then on my pack, they usually can't even see my pack from the front Cause I don't have a hip belt. I just have two shoulder straps. So it's essentially looks like a day pack. Right. And people, they get really confused. Hey, where's your car? I'm like, I don't know. Oregon. Maybe <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I walked here from Mexico and they're just, like, where's all your stuff. Well, I have everything I need. That doesn't make any sense. Well, check out my website. I'll, uh, you can, I can assure you, this is everything I need to be safe and comfortable. Oh, I love but, it. You know, also like, Uh, I think of young kids who are their first exposure to the outdoors is a traditional heavy load. Kids aren't going to like that. Like if you want to turn off a kid to being outside and being in the woods, camping, hiking, climbing, like put a huge load on their pack and give them big leather boots that give their feet blisters and make them sore. They're not going to like that. And again, and even with uh, older people, I've seen out on trail, you know, maybe a, a man or woman in their 70s with a traditional backpacking load. And all I can think of is like, why I want to stop and help you. And you know, you're, you're already out here um, with age against you. Like we all get older and it doesn't get any easier. The knees and back, I mean, myself included, I'm starting to feel that effects too. But with a uh, lighter weight gear, you can get out there and still have the same experiences, but not beat the crap out of your body.
2: Yeah. And why not? There is one question about it that I'm sure other people have asked, but I have to. Your setup does have some protection from the elements, but if you get caught in the unexpected Arctic blast, you know, then uh, what do you do then?
0: So there's only been one, maybe two times where I really questioned my decision to go as ultralight as I do. And I'm thinking of a particular moment on the Continental Divide Trail, going through the San Juan Mountains, where you're at eleven, twelve thousand feet for extended periods of time. Yep. And I had a thunderstorm slash ice storm that turned into a snowstorm. That was one of the scariest experiences of my thru hiking career, where the lightning and thunder were simultaneous directly over top of my head. Uh, right. The weather, you know, I was there's no no vegetation to hide behind. I was just getting beat up. I was starting to drop in temperature. And that's when the grit has to come out. Mm. I think a lot, I think a lot of people neglect to include the grit when they talk about going as ultra light as I do. Now, if you have like a 10 pound or eight pound base weight, you can, you're carrying a lot of extra stuff. Two pounds is a lot of extra weight. You can carry a lot of extra warm layers, rain protection in that two pounds. Once you're doing what I'm doing down to that six pounds, you got to start relying on a little bit of that grit, that toughness, that mental and physical fortitude that's going to allow you to push through these, these uncomfortable experiences, whether you call it the pain cave, as we call it in the ultra running community. Um, I mean, and go to that instance. I just talked about what I did is I, bundled up with all my clothes. I put my head down and I crushed miles. I didn't stop. I kept the, the heat from motion. That, right. That's what was protecting me was, was just the, the heat that I was generating as I was hiking. And I just hiked nice and fast, nice and calm. I knew from reading my ha- my maps ahead of time, because I always plan ahead and prepare. I knew that I was eventually going to come down off of this ridge where I expected there to be more trees, a little bit of protection where I could set up my shelter. And so I had a few hours of being extremely uncomfortable. And that's not fun. That's the type two fun. Where Even looking back on it, you're like, why did I do that? That sucked. If I just would have <laughs> had an, you know, a few extra layers. It would have been a lot more comfortable. Um, so, yeah, that's what I did. And I know, again, through experience, what I can get away with. Right. So I wouldn't recommend someone who's going from a traditional 30-pound base weight just all of a sudden tomorrow and go out with a 6-pound base weight because they might not have that grit. I don't know. They won't even know until they actually experience it themselves. Sure. But it's it's going out and, and, and testing your limits, pushing yourself, and seeing what you're capable of. That's the only way you're going to be able to know what that baseline
2: is. And you know, Lint, not everybody has the same tolerance for cold. I have a friend who I've seen get hypothermic two times. Mm. when i was fine but mm-hmm. it, it for some reason his body had just a and it you couldn't tell by looking either you can't say oh, what's your body type you're lean or you're you have more padding or whatever it is it's not like that but for some reason he would get hypothermic and i I've, yeah. I've gone through some issues i mean what you're describing hiking on the continental divide trail that's where i hike all the time i live in colorado that's my world and so i've had to do that I've had, to, I've had to realize when, listen, I, I am not prepared for the weather right now, so I can't stop. Yeah. I've got to keep moving and keep my energy level up because that's how I'm going to get through this. But then I know other people who just, they chill out and they lose their ability to reason. And that's mm-hmm. the scary part. When mm-hmm. your body temperature drops a couple of degrees and you can't think straight anymore, that's when people make really bad mistakes. So, you know, you've proven to yourself... That you can press on through, and I think I can because I've done that as well, but I've seen people who don't, and I don't know what the difference is. It's not toughness, yeah. you know, it's probably genetics.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if this is stuff you can you can learn, or, I mean, I, I just love that term grit. You <laughs> yeah, know? that's good. Like, when you got to dig deep, like when I started exploring, in, like, ultra marathons, for example, when you're doing a 100-mile ultra marathon, the only thing that gets you from mile 90 to mile 100 is pure grit. Right. I don't care how much training you've done, how much stamina, how much endurance you have, mile 90 to mile 100, and you better be tough as nails because that's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done.
2: Mm. Well, it does sound extremely hard. You know, I've done the 12 to 14 to 16-hour hikes, but I have never tried to run even a marathon. So when you talk about those sorts of distances, I just am wowed. You know, I think most people are, how does anyone run a hundred miles, but people do it. Yeah. People do it. And it is grit. It's being yeah. in great shape and knowing how to do it. And then having the grit to stick it out. For sure. Well, let's talk about van life a little bit, man. I, I would love to continue talking about through hiking and backpacking. Maybe we can come back around to that, but I want to get your take on van life. So what are you yeah, doing man. when you mean when you say van life, what do you mean?
0: So about a year and a half ago, I had a bit of a paradigm shift. I was looking at potentially purchasing some property. I was going to build a little house and I was working with a realtor and they were showing me things that were in my budget that were not very pleasant. And I started looking down the barrel, that mortgage Mm. and I went, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what am I doing here? I want a house. I want the safety and security. What if... I did this van life thing and I'd, I'd heard about it. This isn't something I'd made up. You know, people have been doing this for a long, long time. So, a little bit of uh, internet exploring and research. I landed myself a 2015 Ford Transit high top. So, most people confuse it with a Sprinter van. That's the more popular van, but they're tall enough that you can stand up in. The stand up height in my current van is about six foot four inches and I started converting it with the help of a much more skilled friend. So currently my van has a solar panel up top. It's fully insulated. It's sheathed the walls and the ceiling with wood. It has a heater, a stove, a refrigerator, freezer, and a sink. So I have everything I need in this tiny 86 square foot space, but it's mobile. It's basically like a, an RV. And the benefits of that were, well, financially, definitely. I spent a fraction of the cost like what I would have spent with a house. And now I can be completely mobile. So if I want to be a snowbird like I did last winter, instead of having to deal with the cold Oregon winter, I just drove down to Baja and cruised around Mexico for a bit. And when that got boring, I went over to Florida where my partner and I, well, I hiked the Florida Trail and she drove my van and met me at road crossings along the way, which was pretty styling. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. I'd never done a thru-hike before where I had home cooked meals, changes of clothes, and my computer at the end of the day where I
2: could watch cartoons. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so, that's, a, that's another major lifestyle. You know, most people that do these things say, well, I can only do this for this period of time. I have to get back to work. I've got to pay the mortgage. I got to, you know, take care of all of these obligations I signed myself up for by right. trimming that stuff out. It it follows your ultralight mentality here by trimming that stuff out. It freed you up to be where you want to be when you want to be and and only as long as you want to be.
0: Most definitely. And. I, when I talk about van life, I think the image that most people have would be the Chris Farley sketch from that Saturday Night Live show where he's living in a van down by the river. They equate van life with, oh, you poor thing. What did you do to deserve like that? They <laughs> think of you know poverty and despair. Uh, what I'm doing is most definitely not anything with poverty and despair in the title. Like My van is actually really nice. I have a lot of money tied up into this thing. Um, yeah, the, the, the van conversions, like what I'm talking about are more like in a hundred thousand dollar range. So yeah, I'm living in a van, but it also has walnut cabinets with stainless steel hardware. You know, the refrigerator that I have is made for sailboats and RVs. So it's a $1,300 refrigerator I have a cork flooring and you know, these expensive solar panels to be off the grid and get my electricity from the sun's rays. So I invested a lot of money to build this thing uh, thinking long-term I knew if I lived in this for five to seven years versus paying rent at after the end of those five to seven years I'd still have a van versus if I was paying rent I wouldn't have anything right so yeah. for me with, with my lifestyle you know I don't have any debt I owe nothing to anybody I don't have any kids I live very simply within my means like I'm a I'm a cheapskate you know I, I prioritize going out and having these hikes these adventures like that's what I want to spend my money on so I make I make sacrifices when I'm not on trail so that when I get on trail I can live like a king yeah although living like a king means eating instant, instant potatoes and jumping in a river for a bath <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's great with the van it was you know the way the system is set up right now you you really can't change the game housing housing is always going to be expensive land is one of those few things that they're not making any more of and as population increases it's just going to get more and more expensive to purchase land houses and whatnot so i couldn't change the game but with the van what i was able to do is change the way i played the game so i just kind of tweaked or hacked the rules so i built myself a house that's on wheels so i could i don't have to pay property taxes uh I don't have a lot of the repairs associated with home ownership. There's still repairs. It is a vehicle and things go wrong. I got to change the oil and pay insurance on it and fill it with, with pet, uh, diesel fuel. But it's just, it's simpler. So didn't change the, the, the game. I just kind of tweaked the rules a little bit.
2: I think that you're, you're doing it from the right angle. I, I have a friend who decided to try to do that to save money, but he ended up buying a, uh, a trailer that he could leave parked in an RV park And he made it through, I think, one, maybe two winters in that. And he was paying a lot of money for, you know, a place to park it. And he eventually said, I just wasn't worth it. He bought a house and and joined the rest of the world. But the way that you're doing it, you can avoid those expenses and uh, you're still going pretty darn light. You don't have a, a, you know, a 24 or 30 foot trailer that you have to drag around and leave somewhere.
0: No, man, this thing is super small. Uh, It blends right into the scenery when I'm in urban environments. Most people assume it's an electrician or a plumber's vehicle when it's parked up front. So I can just park anywhere. In fact, one of my favorite things to do is park in the really, really nice parts of town. Not only are you less likely to have someone come knocking on your door like a a criminal or a derelict, but I kind of like waking up in the morning and making coffee and watching everyone go to work and... (laughs) You know, they're, they're in a, a million dollar house and they're, they have a really nice, you know, $80,000 car and I'm making French press coffee in my van going like, well, I hope I can make it in time for yoga.
1: <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> That's you
2: know. fun.
1: While doing your holiday shopping this season, why don't you drop by our site at 180tac.com and pick up a camp stove for the adventure on your list. The 180 stove, 180 Flame, and Bear Lane Plus are all made right here in Colorado and sure to make your loved one a happy camper. It's a great excuse to treat yourself to something special as well. Visit us at www.180TAC.com. Hey guys, this is Travis. I just wanted to give you a quick update on Action Heat. As you know, they're our new sponsor and they sent Curtis and myself uh, some heated socks and heated shirts to try out. And I wanted to let you know, I got out on the motorcycle this weekend and when the sun dropped, the temperatures became about 45 to 50 degrees. I was able to flip the switches on these things and they made the ride so much more comfortable. So if you've got somebody on your holiday shopping list that might be able to use heated clothing like this, then be sure to go to action-heat.com slash adventure to save yourself 15%. Thanks guys. Now on with the show.
2: So my co-host, Travis, um, he recently decided to try this out a little bit, just kind of as a side thing, mostly just for camping and to get him close to where he wants to do his adventure sports. So, you know, he and his wife have a house and all that kind of stuff. So standard. But he got a GMC Safari. Nice. All-wheel drive. All-wheel drive. And what was interesting about it is most people think of that as, well, that's the minivan or maybe the work van minivan. and. But what he did is he put a lift kit under it, so he got about three more inches of clearance, and then he, he kind of detailed it so it looks a little bit more rugged. He put a big rack on top, and inside he has a queen-size bed. He has uh, his battery packs that are recharged from his engine, and he's working on the photovoltaics. He has his sink, he has his poo spot, you know, and he even got a swivel chair so he could turn one of the front seats around backwards and have a recliner to sit in in his house. So he set it up and man, he can, he can go to any trail he wants to. And that becomes his home for all of his, you know, his adventures going out, whether that's hiking, biking, motorcycling, you name it. And I'm kind of jealous of that. But what he has is pretty cut rate. But still, it works. It's a concept, proof of concept sort of a thing. But what you're talking about, every time your rig goes by, I watch him salivate. He's like, oh, that's <laughs> next. That's next. <laughs> and so, anyway, you're starting a business building these for people, right? Yeah. So, what happened is after I
0: uh, completed the transit, and uh, I went on this big road trip and explored a lot, and... What happened is I had a lot of people coming up to me at parking areas or, uh, you know, at the gym, and they they knew what was going on enough to know that was a conversion. And when I opened the doors and they'd seen what I did to that with the help of my friend, you know, the quality of the craftsmanship, the nice wood, stainless steel, you know, they wanted to buy it. Right. And I, even though they, I had some really, really tempting offers, like six-figure offers, of course, I couldn't sell it because I lived in that. Yeah, it's my home. So my home if i sell this i'll be homeless so when i came back through portland i stopped and visited a really old friend of mine who is a genius designer fabricator just kind of an all-around savant type person and we discussed the possibilities of maybe buying a van together as a partnership doing a conversion and then selling it so we actually just put an ad on craigslist yesterday we did a, a full conversion on a ProMaster. It's even nicer than the one I'm in right now. Mm. So. That
2: is fun. Yeah.
0: I mean, there's, there's a lot of demand for these things. You have retirees who don't want to be in a 40-foot travel trailer. You have digital nomads. So these are people who maybe work for Google or in some other version of the tech industry who are making six-figure salaries, but they don't need to be at work. They just need a Wi-Fi. Right. So if all you need is a computer and Wi-Fi, you can pretty much go anywhere you want to as long as you have access to the Internet. So mm. um, there's, a, there's a whole revolution of people who are seeing the benefits of this more transient lifestyle. You know, maybe they're into surfing or maybe they're into skiing and snowboarding and they want to chase the respective waves, whether it's the ocean or the mountain snow. And you don't have to be stuck in one place. You can literally drive wherever you want to.
2: Or you can also do the snowbird thing. for sure yeah. well I love
0: it the the market's really crazy right now there's a few companies here in Portland that have been doing it for a while and they're all booked out 18 months in advance Mm. so even if you bring them a vehicle you have to wait a year and a half to get that vehicle back so what we're doing is just a little bit differently uh, than what they're doing is we're just buying the vehicle outright ourselves doing the conversion and then throwing it on Craigslist
2: so instead of waiting a year and a half just call Lint He'll take care of you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. uh, We only have, we're only doing one at a time though. So (laughs) I figured we'll, we'll probably do a few of these every year, just enough to, we're not going to get rich doing off. This It's more of like a hobby. That's going to pay some of the the meager bills, Uh, but it's fun. You know, I'm essentially hanging out with my buddy, working on vans, playing music, cracking jokes all day. And after a few months, we have this van that we've converted. That's a rolling piece of art. It's beautiful, functional, and there's a huge demand for it. And, you know this is an age of amazon prime where people want stuff now yeah so they don't want to wait eight they don't want to wait 18 months to get their van they want to buy something right now they sure. want to get out and start adventuring and exploring so that's the market that i'm i'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to be tapping into here yep
2: you know we're going to run out of time way too soon we could talk for another 3 hours <laughs> it would be no problem but I wanted to bring up something that you brought up before we recorded. You know, you're talking about hanging out with your buddy, working on vans, listening to music, telling jokes. And what I didn't hear there was getting drunk.
0: Most definitely not. I am a, I am a sober as a judge these
2: days. Well, tell us about that. Why, what has sobriety done for you?
0: So I was a very functional alcoholic for much of my life. Um, it never interfered with my work or my relationships, but it was definitely interfering with my mental health. I was able to keep everything together, but you know I was drinking like a 12-pack of beer to blackout drunk nearly every single day. So I kind of had an epiphany, and I don't want to take up too much time. There was a little bit of plant-based medicine involved with that epiphany. <laughs> but I kind of came to this moment of self-realization where I saw what excessive alcohol intake and the abuse was doing to my brain and my body. And and I made the conscious decision like I in the 20 years that I've been drinking alcohol, I drank a lifetime's worth. So I simply ran out of beer credits. So I quit. Mm. And, yeah, it's been it's been challenging. I mean, that's how I socialize. That's the lubricant that gets people talking. That's what you do when you're at parties or hanging out with your friends. It's so ambiguous in our culture. Alcohol is a part of of everything. Um, And stepping back from that. You know, it's, it's, it's a a learning, relearning how to live pretty much when you, when you don't have that drug, you know, it's, it's definitely a drug. Alcohol is 100% a drug and some people can maintain a relationship with it and some people can't. And I definitely fell into that category of people who can't.
2: Mm. So now that you have been sober for an extended period of time, uh, how is your life better? How's it different?
0: Well, in the year and a half since I've quit drinking, I've, I've become a much more happy, pleasant, and grounded person. Um, I didn't realize how much alcohol abuse was impacting my mental health. Like it made me very angry because I was constantly feeling sick. Mm. You know, my the hangover was constant every day. I was hungover, and I didn't realize that that was just the norm. When you drink as much as I was drinking, that just becomes part of how you feel. And much like how you don't notice your eyesight going bad over the years until you actually put on a pair of glasses. When I took off those beer goggles, I realized just how much damage I was doing to myself. So yeah, I'm excited to, you know, I'm a year and a half sober now and there's no way I'm ever going back. Like <laughs> my level of, of, of contentment has skyrocketed with uh, sobriety. And also I've been, I was at first reluctant to share this publicly. There's a lot of stigma associated with substance abuse. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to make that public. But I talked in person with some people who were also struggling with their own addictions and decided it was essentially my responsibility to come out in my community anyway and be that lightning rod, let people know, like, hey, it's, this can happen to anybody. Like, even someone like me who 3X every year, who seems to have it all together, who is living this dream lifestyle. Like, hey, man, I got bit by it too. And you're not alone when you're out there. Like, if you have a substance abuse issue, like keeping that to yourself and trying to battle your demons all alone, like, it's going to be hard to get away from those demons without the assistance of a community or at least uh, learning from the lessons of other people. So.
2: Well, dude, thank you so much for sharing that. I know that um, for people that do have that challenge, they need that encouragement and they need to know that they're not alone. And uh, what you have done as an example, man, it's uh, it's good. It's great. That makes a difference in the world just because you're able to say, I was this and I did this and I am this and you can be that too if you so desire. Yeah. And,
0: you know, you're in Colorado. I kind of want to give a little shout out to my buddies over at uh, the Phoenix. used to be known as Phoenix Multisport. It's a sober, active community. They have a, the, a flagship chapter was in Denver. They've said branched out to Boston, San Diego. They just opened a space in Boise. Um, and these are places, these are nonprofit gyms where people, the only requirement is 48 hours of sobriety. And you can go there and attend classes for free, where they're going to teach you Olympic lifting, they're going to teach you, uh, rock climbing. Uh, there's courses in running. Uh, you're just, you're, you're getting a community of other people who are going through these, these difficulties and using athleticism to form a community and break those bad habits.
2: Right on, man. You know, it's been over a year ago, but we interviewed them, had them on the show and talked oh, all no about way. it. Yep. We did. I,
0: hear, I haven't, I haven't heard that one. I'm going to have to go, uh, dive into the depths of the internet and pull that one up.
2: Yeah, well, what we have found is that for whatever reason, iTunes doesn't leave all of our shows available. They they eventually do time out. So if you want to get to the older shows, go to the adventuresportspodcast.com and at the top, this is the shortcut for finding anything you want. There's a link that says uh episode categories. And we okay. actually index our episodes. It's not easy. It actually takes more time than we have, but we feel like it's worth it. We index our episodes by sport. And so you can go into that page and choose any sport you want to learn more about. And there will be a dozen or more episodes where you can learn from the masters in the field, you know, about the sport. But you can also search uh, by title or by subject. Just hit Control-Find, right, Control-F, and type in Phoenix Multisport, and uh, that episode will pop right up. Word up. Yeah. So I just want everyone to know, we uh, for a while there, we got lagging behind. We didn't have all of our episodes indexed, but we are caught up to within a couple of weeks now. So if you go to the episode categories on our website, you can get to all of that treasure trove of knowledge that people have brought to the Adventure Sports Podcast. So it's there. It's a resource. Use it.
0: And you can even go and find the one about the Triple Triple Clowner.
2: <laughs> that triple triple I mean, clowner.
0: Yeah, man. I try not to take myself too seriously, and so I don't expect anyone else to. I'm just trying to out there, live my life the way I want to, have fun, cause no harm to anybody, you know. And that's the message I always try to tell people: is like, there's so many different ways to live your life. There's no right way. There's lots mm. of wrong ways. If you're unhappy with your life, that's one of the wrong ways. If you're infringing on other people's freedom, that's one of the wrong ways. But if you're happy, if what you're doing brings you joy, if you can wake up every day and be stoked about what's ahead of you, like you're doing something right. And that's all I'm trying to do. I'm figuring it out every day. I'm always a student. I'm trying to learn from others people. You know, the sobriety is something I've only been dealing with for a year and a half. And it's just another step in my personal evolution towards the goal. And the goal is happiness.
2: Yeah, man. Right on. So, man, that's such a closing, perfect closing Sentence right there, but I have to ask one more question. Sure. This, this long distance hiking has, has been a major part of your life and, uh, just kind of wrap it up for us. Uh, what's it done for you and what might it do for others?
0: So the long distance hike, while is often a solo endeavor, it's you out there with your backpack cruising through the wilderness. It reawakened my faith in humanity. Hmm. As you're, you're out there with other kindred spirits, people who put aside jobs, responsibility, the things that our culture tells us that we need to focus on. And instead, they focus on something else, this arbitrary goal of walking from point A to point B on a long-distance trail. And whether you actually make that journey in one complete hike or not, like that's not the point. The point is that you're actually going out there and trying to do something. And some people are going out there to heal some people are going out there to prove something to themselves or others. Some people like me are going out there because they don't even know what else to do. But meeting the people along the way, you're going through these communities as a homeless person. You know, you roll in there, you got your backpack. Men usually have beards. The girls have their legs are all hairy and we're all covered <laughs> in a trail trail patina, as I like to call that layer of dust that likes to stick to everything. when you're out there for extended periods of time. But you're rolling through these places. And for the most part, you're welcomed with open arms. Mm. And these are people, especially like, you know, I live in a little bit of a bubble. You know, most of my friends are outdoors people. There's definitely more of a progressive liberal bent to the politics. And then I go out in like the CDT and I'm going through these small, rural, oftentimes very, very right-wing areas where if you read the newspapers, like we're supposed to hate each other, we're supposed to fight. There's all these divisions. And you go out there and you talk with people and you realize... We're all the same, right? you know, and you find commonalities and make connections with people that, I mean, gosh, some of my best friends in the world now are people that if you look at us on paper, you'd think we hate each other's guts, but we've, we've been able to find a friendship through shared experiences and a love for the freedom that long distance hiking can offer.
2: Wow. Very cool, man. Well, I'd like to say it this way. We're human first. We have ideas second. Hell yeah. So, you know, if you find the humanity first, the ideas can kind of take care of themselves. I like the sound of that. Yeah. Well, man, Lint, this has been a lot of fun for me. I love what you're doing here, Um, especially the the depth you dived into the ultralight stuff. You got me rethinking some things. I think there are ways (laughs) that I can go even lighter. So thank uh, you for the time to, to share with us and to share what your lifestyle is all about. I think it's super cool. Yeah, well,
0: I, I appreciate the chance to come on. And, you know, I, I keep a pretty, pretty active Instagram page if people like social media. Uh, so, yeah, you can check me out there. I'm also, i am also got a website, which I don't update hardly at all, but I'm working on that. And then I just started a YouTube channel. And, again, all these things, if you just search for Lint, I should pop
2: up. So Clint Lint Bunting And what is your website? My website's
0: pretty easy to remember because it's my name and what I do. Linthikes.com.
2: Linthikes.com. So if you want more information or if you want to be the first person to buy this Overlander House on Wheels, (laughs) um, then you're going to have to act fast, get a hold of Lint, and uh, he'll set you up. (laughs) Yeah, any listeners to this podcast get a a 1% discount. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, Travis is going to (laughs) be knocking on your door then. (laughs) <laughs> well thanks for your time man we really appreciate it hey kurt thanks for having me on man you bet and for all the listeners out there i hope you learned something today i know that i did make sure until the next show to get out there have some fun
1: coming up on monday's show we're going to talk to ray the about mountaineering he's climbed all 48 four thousand foot peaks in the white mountains until then get out and have some fun